0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Sarah Farmer, the author of Rural Inventions, the French Countryside After 1945. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Hi there, Sarah. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: So Sarah, I've been asking everybody, I thought I was only going to be doing this for a few months, but it's gone on and on and on, (laughs) um, how they're doing in this era of global pandemic. So yeah, anything you want to tell us about where you are and how it's all been treating you?
1: Well, I'm in Southern California and I have the, the benefit of being able to be outdoors a lot. And one of the effects of the pandemic is I find myself wanting to be outdoors a lot. And personally, I'm I'm well I mean I'm in a protected and safe place and also aware of the uncertainties and repercussions of this on the world at large and it's um it's unsettling.
0: Yeah. Well I'm so excited to speak with you about the book but before we dive into that I typically ask people you know why France how did you become a, a historian
1: of France? Well I came to French history through having great french teachers in middle school and loving learning french. Mm. And so that really led me to try to get there and be there and speak it and hear it and so it really was through through french language. I first got to go to france when i was in summer but that i was uh, 15 going on 16 and went to a school in a remote part of of france for just, for just a summer session. And then when i was in University, when I was at college, I took a year off from college and I wanted to continue learning French. And so I went to France, but I wanted to be in a place where I would speak French. I didn't really want to be in a city taking care of children. And so I got myself to a sheep farm in the Limousin region of France. And that really kind of set me on the path of French history because I got interested in, I got into conversations with people. I got into conversations with a shepherd who I worked with about the current political situation. This was in 1978. When he talked about the current political situation, he made references almost immediately to the history of the region during the war. And that struck me as a 20, 21-year-old that uh, he had been a child, but he was talking about the experiences of the region during World War II. And so that led me to to get money to go back the following summer and work in archives and to work Uh on the history of rural resistance in the region.
0: Well, and eventually that took you to your work on Oradour, right?
1: It did. Um,
0: that I'm obsessed with, or have been <laughs> obsessed with for years.
1: It ended up taking me to Oradour because the same person, when he was telling me about the the Communist Party and, and, and the, the uh, Maquisar and so forth during World War II, also referred to the massacre at Oradour, and he had the memory of being a child and seeing the smoke from Oradour on the horizon. Mm. And years later, when I was working and had gone back, to, I had gone to graduate school and was thinking of um, how what I might do for a dissertation topic. I started thinking about memory and commemoration. This was the era of, of, of Pierre Nora, mm-hmm. and I had picked various sites to look at as sites of remembrance and memorials and orador was one of them and it ended up becoming uh, the central thing to work that I ended up working on
0: now that you've told the story of the different things that you learned about or thought about after you know that period of time it's sort of like the origin story of multiple projects <laughs> including this one
1: <laughs> it's true it's a there is there is something in that uh, and in fact I spoke to his son's wife uh yesterday so oh wow <laughs> so you know those connections continue the way i look at france i guess i could say it, there's ways in which they're kind of like spokes of a wheel that uh, started in the hub probably started at this particular place
0: yeah so in terms of the specific origin story of this project mm-hmm. what else would you want to tell us about how you came to write a book about the french countryside after 1945
1: well i came to it because um over the years, I was I noticed the way in which the countryside seemed to be just there was rapid change, and in retrospect, that change was it was happening when I was there in 1978. Mm. Um, but uh, I perceived it 30 years later, uh, or you know, in the early 2000s, when I was back in this region and visiting. I should say, this shepherd's widow. Mm-hmm. And she had moved to a little town nearby. This is a woman that I was visiting who had, you know, had, had never learned to drive. She first used a telephone in 1971. And her new neighbor down the street was a German, which in the Limousin until very recently, Germans were not welcome. But there she had a, a, a German neighbor who, it turns out, was a who was somebody who bought a secondary residence and then had moved there. And she had made her living at one point as being a curator of Bob Guccione's art collection, Bob Guccione being wow. the, a, a pornographer, you know, they had the guy the yeah. Penthouse magazine. And the idea that this woman and this other woman were neighbors kind of blew my mind. And so I thought <laughs> there's something, something's going on here. How is it that these two people are living down the street from each other. And so it was that that kind of spurred me to get a kind of my head around the idea that this place was changing and that rural France was not something, that is not a place that is uh, static the way that it's often portrayed. And the one, one reason why people often say they like to go there is that it's a slower pace, that it's, uh, you can go back, that things have there, there's tradition and so forth. And I wanted to get an idea of uh, the nature of change and What were the elements that were that contributed to that? Uh, The place that I had known as a bastion of rural resistance in a remote area had become part of a widespread international fantasy of living in the French countryside. And I wanted to find out how that happened.
0: So in the introduction to the book, Sarah, you map out the project that you're going to be looking in this book at the status and decline of the peasantry in France after 1945, and looking at this period of waning peasant life and agricultural life as one in which there is a renewed attachment to rural life in France, you, you, and I'm quoting you here that the attachment to rural life became an abiding characteristic of post-war culture. So could you just say a little bit more about that, that paradox and, and how that kind of became the focus of the project?
1: Well, what I was interested in was post-war modernization mm. and the effects of the changes that took place in France during the period that became known as the, the Trampes Glorieuses, or the 30 Glorious Years, which basically are the period from 1945, 1950 to 1975, 1980, but that there's, an, there's explosive economic change and modernization. And this modernization took place in the countryside as well as in the city, mm. and that The urban and rural are often seen as being opposed and different, Um, and I wanted to push back against that and show the ways in which the urban and the rural are intertwined, and that post-war modernization and prosperity of the 50s and 60s had huge consequences for rural France, and were also, these changes were part of state-led modernization. In other words, the rural was also the object of big post-war projects. You had high-rise housing, super highways, power lines, fast trains, and expansion of big agriculture, and all of these things radically changed French landscapes and also uh, rural society. Modernization of the countryside consisted also of small-time farmers getting their first tractors, peasants leaving, hamlets being abandoned, but also people who stayed in the countryside becoming "quote-unquote" modern farmers, and so the countryside is was part and parcel of the process of modernization. And at the same time, there was a sense that traditional agriculture, which was going the way of the dinosaur, Mm. was to lose that was a kind of cultural and spiritual loss from the point of view of a lot of the French. So the paradox that I was trying to address was the fact that on the one hand, the French public embraced consumer society and cutting edge innovation and on the other hand, remain deeply attached to the nation's peasant past and nostalgic for the old rural world that was disappearing. Mm -hmm.
0: You also kind of frame the project as one that is about looking backwards, but also about thinking about how rural life and the peasantry and images of all of those things kind of figure in France's future going forward from 1945. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: So one of the things that I noted was that there were people who were peasants who wrote life stories that were interested in contemporary life and the future. So, for example, Emily Carl, who wrote uh, La Suppose Herbe Sauvage, A Life of Her Own, uh-huh. was a school teacher, was, a, was a, a, someone who was born in 1900, and her teacher convinced her father to allow her to go to school, and she ended up becoming a school teacher and going back to her home region she was concerned about feminism, she bec- she married an anarchist, she became a militant environmentalist, and so you could have individual peasants who, on the one hand, could be viewed by, by some people as being some kind of relic from the past. They themselves were involved in thinking about contemporary society and, and the future. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also true for Um, Ephraim Grenadou who wrote a book that became a bestseller and he was celebrated as a peasant but he became a modern agriculteur he became a a modern farmer and he was proud of that even though at the end of his book he talks about certain things that he hangs on to Mm -hmm. so for example he built himself a modern house and then decided to have his daughter move into it and he stayed in uh, in his old house uh, and didn't use central heating and so forth. And the other thing I tried to look at was the way in which the rural became a place that in the 1960s, late 60s, and particularly the early 70s, was a place that young people went to to experiment with uh, in projects of founding communes and utopian uh, communities. So that on the one hand you had, I have a chapter that talks about secondary houses and people going to rural areas that are remote and scenic to buy a second house for vacationing and fixing fixing up houses that were abandoned or left by peasants who migrated to urban areas when you had sort of a rural exodus, very significant rural exodus in the 60s. At the same time, and often in the same region, you had young people showing up who wanted to go back to the countryside in order to change their lives and come up with radical futures.
0: I mean, one of the things that I find remarkable about this book is like, it's not an exhausting book, right? It's not a, it's not 7,000 pages long, which I'm really grateful for, even though, you know, there are really good books that are quite long, but the ground you cover in these five chapters and the conclusion is quite impressive. (laughs) Like you're, you move from that first chapter that's about the kind of state-driven modernization and what happens to, and planning and what happens to the peasantry and to agriculture in this period after 1945, making connections to the environmental movement and other things, then a chapter on second homes and the way that people, particularly urban middle-class people, kind of retreat to the rural, the third chapter, Back to the Land that you just referenced a moment ago about rural utopias and communes and young people, particularly after 1968, taking solace in the rural and, and setting up these different types of communities. And again, you know, the connections to environmentalism, then the memoirs like Emily Carl's memoir, and then this amazing uh, chapter on Raymond de Pardons' um, photographs of of uh, rural life uh, as a kind of visual memoir. So I guess my question is sort of a a research and writer question, Sarah, you know, how did you choose the objects for this project that I imagine could have also gone in some other directions? And then the structure of the book, like how did you settle on how to put it together? I'm sure that was a challenge. Can Can you share a little bit of that challenge with us?
1: Well, I mean, it was a challenge in that I knew that there were particular things that I was interested in, and they and they were like, like a collection of different buttons or something, or <laughs> a collection of, of shells or objects that I wanted to look at. And I wasn't always sure what the, what the connection was between them, but they spoke to me in some way. And so the way I ended up going about this was to lay them out in a certain way and see how they could be connected. Mm. Um, I have to say that I got help from friends, as this one always does. But I guess I would have to say is that I did these little, these things as individual pieces and I could see, I could feel the connection or I could see the connection, but trying to express that to other people was hard. Mm-hmm. And at one point I wrote a book proposal, which I submitted in a book proposal workshop. And the very erudite and experienced and uh, sophisticated former editor of uh, at Columbia University Press said to me that that he felt that if this was that this was a collection of essays and that if if one put pressure on it, it could break apart. Mm -hmm. And that was my biggest fear. And so as I continued to work on these different pieces, I started to see the way in which they connected. And. So I guess I would say that if you have the faith in your instincts in a certain way, tempered by conversations with people, that's kind of the way I proceeded. But I, the first nugget that I started with was the interest in peasant memoir. And what I remember was being in the Bibliothèque Nationale and working on something else and sneaking off mm. to read up on peasant memoirs and kind of in a way I felt like I was playing hooky from my more serious project but I ended up getting kind of hooked by um by the by peasant memoirs and in particular I came across a it's called a novel but it's really quite autobiographical right. called Compagnon de la Bourg. and it's uh the subtitle is Roman d'un paysan et de ses chevaux and it was written in, it was published in 1946, and it was written by, by Jean Robinet, and he wrote it when he was actually in a German prisoner of war camp. And it's a memoir of a country person who is writing about the horses that he knew. <laughs> and that kind of blew my mind, that this guy was writing a, basically it was about a man's relationship with the farm animals that he had worked with. Mm. And the farm animals or the the chevaux de trait were the characters. And there was something about that book that grabbed me in terms of, well, it grabbed me also in terms of change Mm -hmm. because people don't have those relationships anymore. And being aware that at one point, one's working companions were these uh, draft horses made me think about other kinds of change.
0: What about some of the other types of source materials that you're working with in this book? Sarah, would you want to draw our attention to any particular challenges or sort of pockets of things that in addition to the memoirs and the visual sources, uh, you know, are kind of anchors for you in this project?
1: Well, one of the fun things about this project for me was to actually work in, in sources of a sort that I hadn't really. The first the book that I did on, on Oradour was really based on archival material. It was also the the new source for me there probably was interviews. I I, I interviewed ancien, uh, you know, people who had were alive at the time and people from Oradour as well. Mm-hmm. And so the one of the challenges there was to think about how do you deal with uh, oral testimony. In this book, the new material or the material that was new to me and that was exciting to try to address was visual material, so it was um, de pardon's photographs, uh, certain things that were on television, also sources that other people have have, have used that, and that I hadn't really, which had much more to do with the popular press, women's magazines, uh, things that, that gave me a sense of consumer culture and also interior decoration, so that the way in which people have ideas about rural life and houses and secondary residences, how those desires could be looked at through looking at, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, La Maison de Marie Claire. I did less, much less with archival stuff and more with published material and also the work of sociologists and geographers, Mm -hmm. who are the people who really were writing about this stuff. When I started this project, I discovered that in the 1970s, rural history was alive and well, and by the time I was working on this book, and it's still the case, I would say... It wasn't. And so it was really from sociologists and geographers uh, that I could find people writing about rural life and landscapes.
0: Well, one of the things that was exciting to me reading the book was that it sort of is teaching me as has taught me to kind of bring alive or how one might bring alive the post-1945 period and connect it to the emphasis on peasant and rural life during Vichy and then reach right back to at least the 19th century. And so, yeah, to sort of bring up these things by also also by connecting them to things like the history of environmentalism, the history of, you know, urban developments uh, that 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 divide that I think I perceived as being pretty stable when I was a grad student, let's say. And since then, you know, that that doesn't hold and that and the book feels like a kind of response to that. Do, Do you think of it that way?
1: I do, and the other thing that's, that's worth noting is that rural France changed so much in this period that it became more diverse and less based on agricultural production. So one of the the changes of the Trente Glorieuse was what became known as uh, generally as aménagement du territoire, but were big government projects that were designed to basically address the balance between urban and rural to build a kind of economic infrastructure, and the whole history of that is in itself, I think, something that's uh, in terms of the history of urban planning and planning in general, state planning, is, is an interesting story. Um, there was a conscious decision on the part of government planners to modernize agriculture, but to also develop the countryside as and rural areas for light industry, for tourism, for uh, nature preserves. And so the countryside became less agricultural at the same time that there was an intensification of agricultural production.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's really the material that is kind of the focus of that first chapter, sort of setting up the book with some of that really compelling, like economic evidence, like state-driven initiatives, planning, and you also are clearly in that first chapter setting up uh, some of the representational, cultural, and other types of questions that that will come up again and again throughout the book.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that happens, and this is where environmentalism comes in as well, is that the rural world is no longer considered, or, or there are things that happen that make it so that it's no longer devoted exclusively to agricultural labor. And there's a sort of a transformation and the peasantry becomes, the peasantry doesn't disappear. There's a kind of a discourse around the, the vanishing peasant. Rural people are still there, but they're no longer... They don't define rural deciding culture in the same way.
0: Mm -hmm. Sarah, that second chapter, Second Homes, Peasant Dwellings as Rural Retreats, like as somebody who has over decades now been both irritated by and, you know, (laughs) guilty of participating in a certain type of fetish of various aspects of French culture, (laughs) including French peasant rural life, vibes, aesthetic, like all of that. Um, right. That chapter really blew my mind. <laughs> like, I just, the connections that you make between, you know, the, the emergence of this real estate market for rural homes. First, like, you know, the abandonment and, and the existence of all these homes and structures, rural structures that are there for the taking, but then the development of this national and international fantasy of the French countryside. It's just such a fascinating story. And it really has that balance, I think, of, The kind of very practical economic side of this situation and that kind of cultural thing, the thing that we all say and ask about all the time, and maybe I'll use this as my opportunity to do that, you know, the Frenchness thing. So yeah, I guess I want to ask you about the role that Frenchness plays as an idea in this chapter, in the book, and then yeah, how you respond or how you would respond to that idea of like, what's distinctly French about this phenomenon?
1: Well, one thing I would like to say is that um, one of the things that I was also doing in this book on a personal note was to try to address my own nostalgia (laughs) and my own uh, tendency to look at the countryside as a place that's meant to, or that one imagines as staying the same and then discovering it doesn't and that it's changing and it's always been changing and to take that on board. Mm. And so the whole fantasy or idea that one could find some place to, it's not everybody's fantasy, obviously, and there are lots of people who are urban people who don't have any interest in in the countryside. But one of the things that I did notice, and and this is something that is, I think, peculiarly French about this, is that there is an abundance of, well, the France has the highest rate of ownership of secondary homes uh, in the world. And I think it's second to now I've forgotten, but I believe it's um, somewhere in Scandinavia, mm-hmm. um, and and so there is that sort of practical infrastructure question of oh the, there's a small holding peasantry that exists late into late comparatively to let's say Germany and England, mm-hmm. and so there are actual you know dwellings that exist and then are are become available for for purchase, but One of the things that a friend of mine noted at one point is, yeah, but then why do people necessarily want to buy them? And so the combination of there being the availability of a certain housing stock, but then a tradition, and this is, I think, also particularly strong in France, a kind of reverence for or an interest in rural life. And that is something that was also cultivated in the Third Republic. Mm -hmm. The countryside is an object of nostalgia and uh, rosy view of the benefits and the joys of bucolic existence alternates between where there's a sort of a back and forth between that vision and the vision of the countryside as godforsaken and a site of, of poverty and ignorance. And one of the people who noted this was a radio uh, host named Pierre Bont who Recalled the, the way in which the countryside in 1959, when he was uh, asked to start a radio program, which would be vignettes of country life, his recollection was that at the end of the 1950s, the countryside was completely discredited. It was a period of outmigration; People were leaving to go to get jobs in the cities and urging their children, peasants or country people were urging their children to get an education and to get out of farming. And everything that had to do with the provinces and a rural connotation was considered old hat and outdated. And then, only five years later, in 1966, the countryside was something that was becoming an object of fascination. And he started a radio show called uh, Bonjour Monsieur Le Maire. And that was a radio show where he would call up mayors of small towns throughout France and talk to them on the telephone and find out what was going on in back home. And people tuned into that. It was only for a few minutes every morning. (laughs) Yeah. And it lasted for years.
0: It's amazing. I mean, I'd never heard of it before, Um, nor had I heard of Pierre Toussaint's column. It it made me think of how obsessed I was as a child. (laughs) with Bob Beale is this old house. <laughs> oh, interesting. I mean, it's not the same thing, but it's sort of that fixing up and the, and the way that decor kind of participated in that.
1: There's also something that uh, Gaston Bachelard wrote called The Poetics of the House. And Bachelard talks about the house as a, well, particular uh, space. And so there's a way in which aspects of this in which being able to find a place to make your own and to rebuild has all kinds of, there's a consumer culture aspect to it, but there's also something else that this taps into. One of the aspects and the paradoxes of this is that having a country place and being able to go to the countryside becomes a kind of marker of being modern, that you can experience mm. both the city and the country, and they're both, in a, and that the truly rich life is one in which people go between the two or have both. Mm-hmm. And it's quintessentially French, and it's also, it's an international phenomenon, which is part of what I found so fascinating, that you have people from around the world who want to experience uh, this. This starts actually in the 60s, even with people from, along with the French, you have Northern Europeans, some Germans, not so many, but Dutch and Scandinavians who were buying up old houses. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole fascination with villages abandonnés, whole villages which are empty and are then publicized by either Pierre Toussaint in his column for La Maison de Marie Claire, or by Pierre Vente, and then people come in and buy places up for second homes. But it's an international phenomenon that then gets another wave with the British in the 90s, and continues to this day. There's a kind of the culture of the love of Provence that uh, is international. (laughs) The male, uh... the P- Peter male and and and, it, and beyond. One of the things I've, I've, that is fascinating is the whole development of a style of interior design, French country, which in Southern California you can go into the mall and <laughs> uh, get your stuff that is considered to be, uh, you know, French country, which is popular along with. I guess these things shift too, but it's an aesthetic that that has a certain fascination for people, uh, and then at the same time you have mid-century modern and they're both actually in some way contemporary in the sense that they're yeah we're talking about different mid-centuries in a way even though people think of french country as being 19th century or earlier.
0: Well, it's so fascinating how there's this kind of layering of these different mid-centuries as you say and then, you know, into the third chapter of the book even though politics and class come up. Before this, the idea of these rural utopias in the post 1968 moment is also really compelling. And yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you, Sarah, about how you think about class and politics in a maybe more narrowly defined way as things that run throughout the project. I mean, especially in that third chapter, but how you were thinking about that, because there is this kind of interesting thing where peasant life status certainly has kind of a class dynamic, but then it kind of gets reversed or whatever, right? Where the peasant aesthetic becomes something that is really for... The middle and upper classes to enjoy?
1: That's a very interesting question, because one of the things that you also have in this is, there are a couple of things that were worth noting. One would be who actually participates in these rural uh, utopian projects, and mm-hmm. then also if we could talk about questions of taste, which is in, r- related to the question of, you know, who goes to to live in the backcountry, and what are they looking for? But if we talk about these mm-hmm. uh, back-to-the-land movements or Groups of people who go and found uh, communities in rural areas. Many of them are middle class, but not by any means all. And one of the things that would be, you know, that I would love to find out more about, or would love it if somebody else did, is the whole question of who participates, because it's quite clear from what I've been able to read in terms of sociology that's been written on this uh, and. also the, the interviewing and work that I did, is that you have middle class radicals you know, that go to to the countryside, but there are also people who are participating who are rural people who have left and come back. Mm. There's a, um, a working class element to it as well. So it's a more v- varied group of people, I think, than one often imagines from reading anecdotally on this. And in terms of taste one of the things that's interesting about this as well is is that you often have the people who stay and who live there are not attached to the traditional <laughs> authentic aspects of rural housing for example the way that the middle class preservationist minded people are and so there are certain kinds of conflicts really or or uh, for example one of the people that I read quite a bit of was a a tastemaker who wrote a, a book about how it, with the do's and and don't do's, or the um, <laughs> you know how to how to restore a, a traditional house, and a lot of what that's about is don't use modern, noticeably modern uh, materials, yes. and so kind of yeah. discussed about people putting you know concrete on their on the outsides of their houses, or so there. In some ways, you have a kind of a conflict between people who have a certain idea of what the aesthetic should be and other people who want to show actually the things that they have that are with it and up to date.
0: The story that's, that runs throughout the book, Sarah, that you know I knew little bits of, but that really come together in this project is the way that this excavation of what happens to the rural after 1945 in France is connected to the emergence of a particularly French brand of environmentalism and environmental activism. And so, yes, I knew about the Lars Act before, but putting it together with this longer story of what happens in relationship to rural life in France and representations of rural life in France was really kind of a revelation. And then, yeah, thinking about environmental politics in France as distinct from some of the kinds of wilderness preservation that takes place, I don't know, I'm thinking of the United States and Canada right now, but, you know, could be other sites as well. How do you see this book as a as a contribution to that historiography that's out there in terms of, well, the technopolitics stuff of, you know, people like Gabrielle Hecht, but also, you know, Michael Bess's work and like, just, yeah, how is this book an environmental
1: history? Michael Bess um, has a, a, a terrific uh, chapter in his The Light Bean Society in which he talks about the peasant as uh, an endangered species. And I have to say that chapter of his book, I have read many times and it's mm-hmm. underlined and it's something I've that was really something that, that, that sparked uh, a lot of my, of interest. And, but, and also that I just went back to often because in many ways it's, my book really is an elaboration of a lot of the things that, that uh, Michael Best puts out in, in, a, in what is actually, you know, not a very long chapter of his, book that covers so much territory Mm -hmm. and one of the things that he really he talks about is that the collapse of peasant society uh, is one of the cultural preoccupations of the post-war era and that it's part of the it's a big part of the motivation of early environmentalism Mm -hmm. when we talk about what kinds of landscapes are important culturally Mm -hmm. certainly in France and Carolyn Ford has written about this as well it's a and others that a cultivated mm-hmm. landscape is the ideal in many ways, and so mm-hmm. the sense that this landscape has been shaped by a peasant civilization, and that that civilization is uh, on its way out, and that these landscapes are going to change, is part of is a, is a big motivator for some of the early environmentalists, and it also brings a kind of support for environmentalists from from a certain members of the middle class, the tastemaker that I just mentioned to you, who was concerned about the preservation of peasant houses, was somebody who, and there were others like him, who were first thinking about traditional houses. Then they were thinking about traditional landscapes, and they went from there to being supporters of environmentalism. So that very person I mentioned, whose name was Robert Fischer, or Fischer, he ended up becoming an environmentalist and marching at Larzac. So at Larzac, you have peasants who are being, a, sheep farmers who are being expropriated. You have uh, workers from Lippe who were Mark who converge mm-hmm. on the Larzac. And also uh, Bernard Lombert, who was a leader of peasant unions. And also the person who, uh, his successor was José Beauvais. So you, there's a, there are all kinds of people who see themselves as being uh, constituents of this effort to protect certain kinds of landscapes. And then it becomes extended to or thought more broadly, I think, in, in terms of nature and and wildlife. And that's also true of the kinds of national parks that are created in France, that often they are places that have been cultivated. And there's an attempt to and in, to incorporate working landscapes into these national parks, which are not seen as much as they are in the United States as being some kind of preserve of wildlife or wilderness.
0: We've already talked a bit, Sarah, about the memoirs and uh, that are kind of the focus of, of the fourth chapter of the book. And and I want to bring us to, around to talking about the images and the photographs that are the focus of the last chapter of the book. But I have to say that image of the still from, is it Bouillon de Couture? Or is it, no, it's Apostrophe.
1: Apostrophe, yes.
0: Of Emily Carl, like, I don't think I can name you a French historian who went to school in and around and probably before the time that I did, who now teaches a survey course or things like it, who hasn't assigned Emily Carl. Emily Carl is like covers so much ground for me in my courses and my students love to read uh, that book and having this chapter that in part anyway, I mean, she's kind of one of the stars of that chapter. Having one that really situates her and connects her to all these other things, like the the memoir does that, but the way that you contextualize her in relationship to all of these other changes was just this isn't really a question. I just really loved it.
1: <laughs> I'm just telling you, that. it's kind of you know. Of course, I've assigned that book myself for that very reason <laughs> sure. that she, well, and when you think of her life from nineteen being born in 1900 and she, I guess, she died in like 1979 yeah. or 80. It's it's kind of astonishing the kind of change that she witnessed and was part of. Mm-hmm. There's something about her story that grabs people, and I think part of it has to do with what she saw and experienced, but also how she is so re- part of the contemporary moment. Yeah. So on that very show, she's uh, it was a show that was called Fam Fam Fam. It was it was a show that was devoted to women. Mm-hmm. And there were on the show various uh, important, Giselle Alémy, the the, Mm -hmm. uh, lawyer who was important in terms of uh, uh, abortion rights and various writers and so Mm -hmm. forth. And then when Emily Carl speaks up, everybody sort of stops in their tracks and turns to look at this woman who then steals the show. It's really interesting. And it also made me think
0: about the fact that in terms of gender the book is really interesting and the the questions and issues that come up throughout the book are really interesting because I, this is kind of a, a cheap way of putting it, but rural France doesn't really, like it can be gendered either way, right? Like there's so much that's feminized about some of these characterizations, but there's also like a kind of masculine thing going on when I think about images and representations of the rural. Does that make any sense?
1: well it's an interesting thing that you're bringing up because one of the things that that gets lost some of, or that i don't know if it gets lost but one of the things that is important is in terms of for example rural exodus huge numbers of women leave mm-hmm. uh, what is rural life for women and so on the one hand you have rural women who are leaving and that i guess this is where we come back to questions of class so you have rural women who are leaving for for more freedom for better jobs uh, and so forth. And then you have middle-class women for whom having a second house can be another place to explore, you know, interior design and modern comforts. So there's, there are all kinds of valences of this.
0: That last chapter, Sarah, and then these plates, you know, these beautiful congratulations on having all these wonderful plates (laughs) in the book. Um, I know that's not always easy to,
1: to, to pull it, No, the, the whole question of um, photographic rights was uh, a big consideration in this project because one of the things that I figured out pretty early on was that choosing to write a Raymond Depardon and getting photographic images meant as a Magnum photographer, uh-huh. his images are expensive and he doesn't set the price Magnum as a cooperative and so you have to negotiate with Magnum.
0: Yeah. So you, I mean, now I'm just curious, but you, you were able to do that in part. It was feasible because-
1: It was feasible because it was an academic book and yeah. it was feasible because at the very end, I was able to get Depardon to help me. When I was trying to get certain pictures, I wasn't getting anywhere. And I had made a contact with Depardon when I was trying to look some figure something out. And then by pure chance called that office to try to get someone to help me and started talking to somebody who really knew the pictures extremely well and we had a we had a great conversation. And at some point I said, you know, can you tell me your name so that I can put it on my notes? And he said, Mais je suis Raymond de Pardon. <laughs> I had no idea. This guy answered the phone and I thought it was a maybe a relative because it sounded like a maybe somebody from the countryside, but I had no, I had not caught on to the fact that it was De Pardon himself.
0: I mean, the photographs are amazing um, to look at in the book. So I'm really glad that they're, they're in here. And I think the different moments throughout the book, when you look at visual sources are, are so compelling, but you know, why is De Pardon just give us a short, like Who's De pardon Why is he? Why does he matter so much? And especially, why does he matter to this project as as the sort of what, final piece of the puzzle?
1: Raymond de Bardon is a famous Magnum photographer who's made his career and is known as a photojournalist who went around the world, photographing uh, all over the world and um, wars of decolonization. He photographed in Africa. He, he's a kind of the Quintessential globe-trotting photojournalist and uh, well very well-known in France. Mm. And I was aware of Pardon as a as a photojournalist, and then I found out that he had his origins. He he was a, he was a kid from uh, a, a small farm on the edge of uh, uh, Chalon-sur-Saone, and he also played a key role in a photographic project. That was related to aménagement du territoire. So he was part of a group of photographers who were asked to reckon with the changes to the French landscape that had taken place during the Trente Glorieuses. And within that, so that in itself was interesting that you had a group of photographers who were looking at the French landscape and produced amazing work. Mm -hmm. And among in that group, he was the only person who really looked at rural life and agriculture. And then I, that work that he did for the uh, Mission Photographique de la Datar was the name of the project, was an exploration of the farm in which he grew up. And so it turned out that there was an autobiographical element to his work. When you first look at his stuff, it appears quite distanced in a certain way because there are no people in it. It's, uh, there's a kind of um, restraint to it. But once you learn more about his own experience, you see that there's a whole form of autobiography. And so his work was important to me because it was a visual autobiography. What he's telling in those photographs, in part, is the story of his family farm, which was marked by, and you could even say uh, uh, obliterated to a certain extent, by... The changes of the Trente Glorieuse. So, the mm-hmm. short story is, is that his family had a, a farm on the, uh, on the edge of uh, uh, Chalon-sur-Saône, and the Paris-Lyon auto route came through the family farm. Mm-hmm. And it took their best fields, and his father, Depardon's father, kind of crumbled after that. And he had left. He was a child of the rural exodus. He had already left when he was 16 years old. All he wanted to do was to get out and become a photographer. And he went back with a certain kind of, I guess one could say nostalgia, to look at that uh, in the context of this photographic project.
0: The book closes, Sarah, with Well, really the end of the 70s and the early 80s, and then you kind of look ahead to the 80s and the 90s. And the thing that struck me the most in that conclusion is the question that you raise about the kind of coincidence of what happens to the history of rural France after 1945 and decolonization, the end of empire or the ends in some ways of empire. And then the kind of massive influx of immigrants from sites of former empire and that question about you know whether this nostalgia, this aesthetic, this kind of valorization of peasant and rural life and a kind of, what is it? Like a true France has something to do with the changes that are largely centered in urban areas that are happening demographically and otherwise in terms of, you know, what the French population looks like, what French cities look like in terms of race, religion, all of these other things. So yeah, you raised that question. Could you just tell us a little bit about what you think of that convergence and, and what those connections are?
1: One of the things that I was asking myself as I was working on this was that I was aware that this is the period when you have of decolonization and when you have the arrival of a lot of post-colonial migrants and immigrants to cities in the metropole. And one of the ironies also is, is, is that a lot of those people were, I wouldn't say it's an irony, it's a fact that many of those people also were coming from rural places. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I wondered was, is this influx another aspect of urban life that led middle-class French people to take peasant dwellings as rural retreats to go renovate peasant houses in the countryside. And so I was wondering if uh, there were people who, for whom immigration was part of their anti-urban sentiment. And in the sources in any case, I didn't find a kind of direct correlation, but I did see that the fact that the French empire and French peasant culture were becoming increasingly untenable at the same time, mm-hmm amplified the paradoxes of the countryside imagined as a place of stability mm-hmm. and at the same time experienced by by people who left as a site of displacement and disruption. So I think that there are ways in which this moment is one in which the eclipse of rural society and the ends of over and the end of overseas empire were elements of the same process of adapting to new configurations of post-war economic and political power. It's not that one causes the other, but that a sense of loss and regret were aspects of the same phenomenon.
0: So, Sarah, when I was reading this book in the evening, I was drinking a glass of natural wine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Bio.
0: <laughs> From France. Right. Like I do. And... um and I got to thinking, you know, and it extends past the period of uh, that the, the, the book focuses on, but I was thinking like, okay, where are we now with respect to these things? The, you know, bi-local, artisanal, craft, whatever, beer, everything, movement in North America that, you know, references Europe and stuff as the place where people have held on to some traditions a bit better, and, and France included. But it's there in France, too. And I guess I just wondered, like, you've got these young people in the 70s and you've got these rich people (laughs) or richer people, you know, buying second homes and they're coming from France and they're coming from all over. But then there's also in the last couple of decades, like this sort of like return to the land that's like different. Right. I I guess I'm going to use the word hipster, Mm -hmm. the farmer's market, the local and, you know, like a lot of the natural I'm, I'm just thinking about it in terms of natural wine because it, it's just a, a love of mine. They're young, you know, like they're young people.
1: Yeah, they're young people are moving too. It's, I mean, I th- I think yeah. for one thing, I guess some of it is still affordable, but you have people, what I've noticed is that they're young people are more interested in agriculture. There's an attempt now, whether it's the, I don't know if it's enough to, you know, what they're, the, the broader forces at play in terms of, agricultural policy and so forth, um, I can't really opine about, but there is, I think there there's nonetheless, the way you have in the United States as well, where you have a younger generation moving to places that are more affordable and where there's there are other opportunities. I think that is happening uh, in France and as well as in the United uh-huh. States. And because, you know, the way France is configured and it's relatively small, people can move to places that are outside of cities and remain connected to urban areas a bit more. Mm. And of course um, the whole business of being able to, you know, use the internet to keep connections going. So one also has to remember that in France anyway, in this, in the period of the seventies and so forth, there was a real effort to subsidize young farmers and that policy is a large part also of what has made it possible for people to hang on and then also in some cases for people to establish themselves. Yeah. So there has been state support for a certain kind of agriculture, in part to preserve a certain kind of landscape.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to me. I mean, I live in Vancouver, right? So, like, there are people, you know, people grow wheat on their front lawns here. And mm-hmm. some people my age, but also a number of people younger, was like, people got chickens. Yeah, that seems related to what you're talking about in the book, but then it's taken this other these other twists
1: and turns. Well, I wonder about that too, because there are also magazines now um, that you know in the U.S. There was Modern Farmer. I don't know if it, if it survived. I also think that you know it's going to be interesting to see, interesting to see what the long term effects of COVID are, because it's uh. also had an effect of people going to places where they've got the way you have in New York. You know, people having gone to suburbs, young couples and with small children. Uh, going to New Jersey and buying up <laughs> in the suburbs, that there, that definitely has happened. And in France, in the last few years, there's a lot of people who have second places or connections to second places have been spending more time there. And so whether that's going to cause some kind of shift and also what it will do in terms of housing prices is is an interesting one.
0: Yeah, it's really, really interesting.
1: And we haven't talked about the question of, of rural poverty and how that continues. And I don't really... Um, so there's a sort of a, those kinds of questions mm-hmm. are also uh, uh, significant because you have people who leave urban areas to go into the countryside partly because they can't afford to live in the in right. cities, but certainly government policy matters in terms of the ability of people to engage in certain kinds of agriculture. So there's still you know subsidies for jeunes uh, agriculteurs or people who are continuing. Uh, taking on their farms or uh, land that their parents have had.
0: So Sarah, one of the other stock new books in French studies questions that I ask that has taken on a kind of different quality for me and for others, I think, during this period of pandemic, because I think, you know, we're all just kind of getting through. So (laughs) where are you at with future projects, thinking about other things that you might want to work on? Have you already started other things? No pressure. The book just came out recently, but you know, if you have other, another project or something that you want to tell us about.
1: Well, I certainly understand what, you know, one of the things that I came off, you know, finished this book and uh, I'm lucky that it was in the pipeline and it came out, but it it, it did come out right. you know, it's a. Sure. It was born at the same time as COVID. I mean, it came out in, you know, March, 2020 and right as COVID, as we started to, you know, pivot shift, shut down, whatever. And. The projects that I'm interested in that grow out of this are, there's sort of two things I'm following up on. One is the question of rural utopias, and I'm particularly curious about charismatic leaders of, of utopian movements. And so I'm reading around and thinking about basically sort of two countercultural figures like, that have caught my attention and that I just refer to in shorthand to myself as the guru and the outlaw kind <laughs> of and I love that so some charismatic leadership and and the connection of that kind of leadership to groups of young people so I'm also interested in questions of uh, power and authority between adults and youth in the 60s and 70s and uh, what goes on and how that plays out in some of these uh, utopian communities and particularly in rural utopias other thing I'm interested in looking at really is uh, what I talk about in the conclusion of the book really is the kind of blurring of the distinction between rural and urban and the emergence of what's now called the peri-urban space, a kind of in-between space, which of course, you know, existed in earlier centuries. We can, there's 19th century people will, you know, talk about the, the zone that was the area between Paris and the hinterland, but geographers often talk about the edge of the city as the urban fringe. And I'm curious about, is there such a thing as a rural edge? In other words, you can think of it as the edge of the city, but what is it? How is it the edge of the countryside? And so I'm like to look at the possibility of there. What are the, the rural components of that peri-urban zone? And during the, uh, the the protests of the gilets jaunes that became apparent to me that there's a there's something important about the fact that the, the gilets jaunes make their stance on the at the rond that are on that are really in the middle of that peri-urban zone or that urban edge or, or, or rural edge the rond point on the on the outskirts of uh, french towns and cities so The other thing I'm curious about is exploring perhaps what that, uh, the dynamics and the representation of the peri-urban.
0: Sarah, I am so grateful to you for taking the time to speak with me and for writing this fantastic book.
1: Well, thank you for having me on and allowing me to talk about rural inventions.